to the Collective Church Podcast. Collective is a church for the rest of us, which means if you have never been to church, walked away from the church, or are struggling to find a church to connect with, you belong here. If you aren't following us on social media, make sure to head to Facebook and Instagram and search for My Collective Church to learn more about what is going on at Collective as we start this new year. Thank you again for listening. Now let's get into Sunday's message. Today is one of those days every single year that brings all the feels, right? Um, I don't know if you've noticed, but there are babies everywhere at Collective right now. They're just like popping up in every space. Um, side note, if you want to just hold babies, join the Collective Kids team because there's plenty of them. They're just like running all over the place right now. Um, but what that means, and what's really cool about that is that means there are a lot of families here that are celebrating Mother's, Mother's Day for the first time today, um, which is just so exciting, and it just brings so much joy to our church. Um, but what we, what we also know about Mother's Day is that there are a lot of people here that are mourning um, because we know that a lot of you lost your mom in the past year. Um, we know that there are people here mourning the loss of a child. And we know that there are people here wanting to be a mom, but struggling with infertility or haven't really found the right person to start a family with. And so we just want you to know that however today makes you feel, uh, we see you. Romans 12, 15 says, be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. And sometimes there are days where you just do both of those things and everything in between. And so we just want you to know today on Mother's Day that we love you, that we see you, um, and we're, we're just so thankful that you're here with us today. One thing we do um, every Mother's Day is we honor this day by handing out potable flowers to anyone who wants one, whether you are a mom or not. And this idea came from some friends of mine who lost a child at 26 days old. And so to honor and celebrate Sammy's life, every year they plant a garden. Um, and this simple act has brought healing, and it's brought joy, and it's brought peace to their family. And so four years ago, we kind of adopted it and brought it to Collective. And so on your way out today, we just want to encourage you, grab a flower and bring it home. Um, you can plant it in your garden. You can put it in a pot. We have people who've been here for multiple years, and they're like, okay, now I have like 18 flowers in my garden. You're like, well, just keep going, because it'll be beautiful one day. Uh, for those of you who are like, I don't know what to do with plants, just Google it, right? Like, people will tell you how to keep this thing alive. You can figure it out. Uh, but this is just our gift for you as you celebrate, um, as you mourn, as you heal, as you feel the joy and peace that today brings. And for those of you who showed up today and you thought, oh my gosh, I didn't know today was Mother's Day, we got you covered. Grab one of the plants and bring it to your mom, and she'll think you're amazing. Um, so we legitimately bought enough for everyone to take, so make sure to grab it on your way out. There's also a photo wall set up, so you can do your Mother's Day uh, a photo today as well. Now, have you ever taken one of those online quizzes to figure out what TV character you are most like? Typically, you find them on Facebook, and they'll say something like, which character are you from The Office, or which Gilmore girl are you? Or for Harry Potter fans, it's which Harry Potter house would you be sorted into? I don't know anything about Harry Potter. I was just told that's the correct phrase for that. Um, but I'm just assuming that some of you have taken the time, probably during work, to take one of these quizzes at some point in your life. But how many of you have taken one of these quizzes 
fully convinced that you were going to get the result of your favorite character, but the internet had other things in mind. Right? You're like, I know that I'm a Hufflepuff, so I'm just going to take this quiz to make sure. But then the internet's like, nah, you're Slytherin. <laughs> right? Or you think, I'm such a gym. So you take an office quiz, but it tells you you're Dwight and you love beats. <laughs> or you take the Ted Lasso quiz, wanting desperately to be Ted. He's full of optimism. He sees the best in things. But it turns out that you're Nate, who is the worst. Right, and we know, we know these personality quizzes don't really mean anything, even though some of you here kept taking the quiz until you got the answer that you wanted. But we don't base our life on the dumb things we find on the internet, right? Right? Some of you need to nod just so I know that you understand that, right? So internet quizzes don't get to decide who we are, but... I do think there are times when we take these quizzes and we realize maybe, like maybe we're not exactly who we said we were, or maybe we're not always who we want to be, or maybe we have some qualities or some ideas that are similar to characters that we don't always love and don't really like. Today we're in the third week of our prodigal series where we're digging into the parable of the prodigal son that Jesus told in Luke 15. And in week one, we read the first half of the story while focusing on the main character, who is the prodigal son. In week two, we actually reread the first half of the story while focusing on the father. And today, we're actually going to start reading part two of this parable while focusing on the lesser-known older brother. And if there was a BuzzFeed quiz about the characters and the story of the prodigal son, I think everybody would want to get the father. Right? That's who they would want to be, he, the one who gives grace. He's loving, and he's kind, he's compassionate. Really, in this story, he's the hero because he forgives his son even though he doesn't deserve it. But if we didn't get the father in our prodigal son character quiz, I think many of us would be okay with being the prodigal son, the one who receives grace. Sure, he makes a ton of bad decisions, but ultimately, he gets something better than he deserves. He gets a second chance. And we resonate with that. Like, we want that, even though sometimes we don't like to acknowledge that we need grace in our own lives. But the person that no one would want to be in this story is the older brother. He's the Ross Geller of this story. <laughs> He's the Andy Bernard. He's the Robin Scherbatsky of this story, the person that no one wants to admit that they might be a little like. He's the person that no one wants to say they see part of themselves in him. And so as we jump in and read this story today, I know that some of us will read it with this perspective and will think, that's not me, and will disconnect. But what I'm asking you to do is open yourself up to hear this story while focusing on the older brother to see if maybe there are times in your life where instead of giving grace like the father or receiving grace like the prodigal son, we do what the older brother does and we deny grace. And if you don't know the story or you missed last week's, let me catch you up. The first half of the story goes like this. There's a father who had two sons, and the youngest son decides that he doesn't want to live and work for his father anymore. So he goes to him and says, I want my inheritance. Ultimately, he's saying, I wish you were dead so I could take this money and go live on my own. And so for some reason, the father gives him the money, and the son leaves. Almost immediately, though, the prodigal son wastes all of this inheritance by living recklessly. And it says that he ends up at rock bottom. But while there, he realizes 
that he needs to go back home and ask, really beg his father for an opportunity to be one of his servants, right? Not his son, but a servant. And when he returns home, his father actually sees him. It's this beautiful moment. He sprints to his son. He embraces him. He says, my son was lost, but now he's found. He was dead, but now he's alive, so let's celebrate. And for the past two weeks, we've stopped there. But now we're going to read the second half of this parable. And this is where the big brother comes into play. And so it starts in Luke 15, verse 25, and it says this. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house, and he asked one of the servants, what's going on? So part two of this story begins, and Jesus is telling us that the older brother comes home after a hard day's work, right, working in his father's field, and he realizes there's a party going on in his house. Right? The music is bumping. People are having a great time. He can hear it outside, but he doesn't know why. And so he asks, what are we celebrating today? It continues, your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. Right? And this should be exciting news. Like He should be excited. His brother, who he thought was dead, was now alive. This should bring him joy, right? But this is what happens. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, all these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. Now, in reading this story, it's really easy to judge the older brother in this moment. right? He should be happy that his little brother is alive. He should be happy that his little brother is home. But instead, it says he gets angry. Right? He tells his father, this isn't fair. And the truth is, he's right. right. This isn't fair. The older brother has done everything right, and yet his prodigal brother is the one who gets the party. And when we really think about what's going on in this story, I think there's a part of us that agrees with what he's saying. Right? We understand why he's upset. And if we were in his shoes, we probably would be as well. And this is how it finishes. It says this. His father said to him, look, dear son, you have always stayed by me, and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. Now, to fully understand this parable and why Jesus shared it, we actually have to go back to the beginning of Luke 15, where all of this started. This is what it says in Luke 15, verse 1. It says, tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. In other words, prodigals, right? Broken people, messed up people, sinful people flocked to Jesus. They wanted to hear what he was saying. But because of this, this made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. Right? And so there's controversy. Religious people are upset with the way that Jesus is caring for lost and broken people. And so what Jesus does is he tells this parable. He tells three parables in Luke 15 about the joy that, it, that comes when lost people are found. But ultimately what he's doing is he's calling out religious people. What Jesus is doing is he's confronting the religious leaders who are upset that he loves lost and broken people. Right? And let's break this down because in this parable, the father represents God. In the parable, the prodigal son represents the tax collectors and other notorious sinners, which is just another way of saying non-godly people, non-Christian people. 
But the brother, the brother represents the religious people. He represents Christians who hate the fact that Jesus loves messed up people, that Jesus came for the lost, that Jesus came for people who are far from God, that Jesus came so that everybody could experience grace, not just the people they think deserve it. And so there are two things that I want to point out about this story when when focusing solely on the brother. And here's the first thing. Christians really don't like grace when it's given freely to people who we don't think deserve it. Right? That's the big brother in this story. He does not think his brother deserves the party. He does not think his brother deserves grace. And when we don't like that other people are getting something better than they deserve, what we have a tendency to do is we have a tendency to put up barriers. Right? We make it harder for other people to experience grace. And really, we make it harder for other people to experience Jesus. One of the reasons people get burned by the church is because they're asking questions and they're pursuing faith and they're seeking God. But before they ever get close to Jesus, they run into us, his followers. They run into people who create barriers and create walls, walls and barriers that Jesus didn't put up. And the result is that people can't even get close enough to bump into Jesus because we get in the way. And some of you have experienced that before. You walked into church and you were told that you didn't have enough faith. You were told that the sin that you had in your life was unforgivable. You were told that you had to get your crap together in order to truly belong. You were told that you had to jump through all these religious hoops just so that you could experience the grace of God. And so if you've experienced this before, all I can really say is that I'm sorry. I'm sorry because that's not what Jesus teaches in this story. This parable is proof of that. One thing I remind my staff all the time is that God doesn't need us to do ministry. He doesn't need us to lead a church. We get to do this. And part of our job is creating the space for people to bump into Jesus and to do everything we can not to get in the way of that. Because if a person rejects Jesus because they struggle with his teaching or don't want to live a life in alignment with him, that's their decision, right? And that happens all the time. But if a person rejects Jesus because of something we did, that's on us. So if you are a follower of Jesus, let me just ask you this. Are you okay with sitting next to messy people? Are you okay with worshiping with broken people? Are you okay with serving or giving or praying so that people who are far from God can know that he loves them? Are you okay with prodigals who receive grace even though they don't deserve it? A few years ago, I was at a church planting conference in Florida, and this guy named Jim Bergen was preaching. Bergen is the lead pastor of Flatirons Church in Colorado, um, and he's incredibly blunt and doesn't have a filter. Uh, He's probably my favorite pastor. Um, And he shared this story with us. This is what he said. One Sunday, um, Jim was in the bathroom after church when a man named Richard walked in. Ignoring all social rules, Richard walked up to Jim and hugged him while he was still at the urinal peeing. That's why we don't have urinals at Collective. We have stalls. You guys cannot hug me while I'm going to the bathroom. Please don't. Um, And so Jim awkwardly laughed and then asked if they could talk outside of the bathroom when he was done. And for the next 30 minutes, Richard shared stories about his life. He shared that he was homeless and lived just a few blocks away from the church. He shared that at a young age, he was sexually abused by a family member, which didn't stop until he ran away as a teenager. He shared that after living uh, on the street for months, Richard began to look for a safe place to take him in. 
And so what he did was he went to the church because he grew up going and he remembered stories of Jesus caring for poor and outcast people. So he started to try to show up at different churches in the area. But the first church he checked out wouldn't let him in because he was late. And so Richard walked away from the church. He walked away from Jesus and he turned toward what he knew best, which was living on the street and hard drug abuse. But a few years later, Richard was at rock bottom and had nowhere else to go, so he tried church again. And this was the part of the story that hit me the hardest that night. Bergen said, Richard would go to the library and Google churches with grace in their title, hoping to find it. But everywhere he went, he was pushed away. He was told he was too broken, too addicted, too dirty, that his past was something he needed to keep private because he was making people uncomfortable. There were barriers everywhere he went. There were churches with an older brother mentality when it came to prodigals. Then one morning he was at breakfast and the waitress asked him how he was doing. He broke down crying. He said, I was searching for a church. And so she invited him to Flatirons. She invited him to Jim's church. And then six weeks later, he gave his life to Jesus and was baptized. But then after telling this story, he asked the 5,000 pastors there, in your church, how lost is too lost? How broken is too broken. If Jesus came for the greedy, the angry, the self-centered, the alcoholic, the liar, the addicted, the depressed, the sinful, and the prodigals, are you comfortable with them being in your church? When is someone too lost for grace? When is someone too broken for redemption? Then he finished by saying that the error that most Christians and most churches make is that they draw a line in the sand and say, you can be this broken, but no more. How broken is too broken. How sinful is too sinful. How lost is too lost for someone to receive grace. Jesus tells another parable in Matthew 20 um, that's on this topic. It goes like this, starting in verse 1. Jesus says, For the kingdom of heaven is like the landowner who went out early one morning, morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay the normal wage and sent them out to work. And this makes sense. A landowner hires workers and agrees to pay them a daily wage because that is fair. But this story isn't actually about farmers. It's about God. God is the landowner. We are the workers. The vineyard is the kingdom of heaven on earth and in heaven. And a lot of Christians would stop right there and really enjoy this version of God. Right? God asks us to do something, so we do it, and we get what we feel like we deserve. We get what's fair. Right? And if the parable ended there, that would fit in with the way a lot of us were raised in the church. It's a works-based faith. You do good things for God. He gives you fair things. You check the boxes, you get heaven. But then the parable continues. And the owner actually hires more workers at 9 a.m., noon, and 5 p.m. And then skipping ahead a few verses, it says this. That evening, he told the foreman to call the workers in and pay them, beginning with the last workers first. When those hired at 5 o'clock were paid, each received a full day's wage. When those hired first came to get their pay, they assumed they would receive more, but they too were paid a day's wage. And so it didn't matter when they started working, they all got paid the same amount, no matter when they arrived at the vineyard. And it continues, when they received their pay, they protested to the owner. Those people worked only one hour, and yet you've paid them just as much as you paid us who worked all day in the scorching heat. Right? And many of us would do the same thing. We would be upset. If we were the first workers, we would feel like we deserved more. If we were the last workers, we would be overjoyed and get out of there as quickly as possible before the boss found out that he paid us too much. 
But check out how the vineyard owner responds. Ultimately, check out how God responds. He answered one of them, friend, I haven't been unfair. Didn't you agree to work all day for the usual wage? Take your money and go. I wanted to pay this last worker the same as you. Is it against the law for me to do what I want with my money? Should you be jealous because I'm kind to others? And so he tells them, you don't get to decide what's fair. You don't get to decide what's right. And the truth is, it's because grace is always unfair. Like forgiveness is always unfair. Eternal life is always unfair. And then Jesus finishes his parable by saying, so those who are last now will be first then, and those who are first will be last. Now, this parable is not about good management practices, right? Because if a vineyard owner actually did this, they would grow broke really fast. But this parable is about God's grace. It's about the fact that it doesn't matter what your past is. It doesn't matter when you start following Jesus, whether you were born in the church or you stumbled in 50 years later. It doesn't matter what sin you have in your life. When you put your faith in Jesus, you get the same measure of grace as everyone else. Or you get the same opportunity of heaven. And the people who hate this parable the most are Christians because it's unfair. But guess what? Grace is unfair. Right? Grace isn't about what we have done. It's about what God has done. And when we're in the space of being the prodigal son, we're just so thankful for the unfairness of grace. But for some reason, something happens to Christians as they begin following Jesus for a while, and they become like the older brother. Right? At some point, there's this turning point when they follow Jesus long enough, when they decide that things need to be fair, they deny grace for others, they put up barriers. But the truth is, with this story, we should become more like the father, not like the older brother. Right? The older father is an example of what a deep and mature Christian looks like, because spiritual maturity is bringing your own friends, your own family to Jesus. And spiritual maturity is creating space for other people to experience grace and endless second chances. Pastor Julian Chavidian said that grace is so offensive that if you're not offended by it, you probably don't understand it. And when talking about grace, the maddest people in the room tend to be Christians because here's what they think. You're letting them off the hook too easy. Right? And here are their arguments, and trust me, I've heard all of these before. He or she is addicted to alcohol, drugs, or pornography. They spend money they don't have. They seek out other people's approval and will lie to get it. They have anger issues and lash out on other people who don't deserve it. They think hateful things. They're a cheater. They're a manipulator. They're bad people who've done shameful, horrible, and sinful things with other people and to other people. Don't they need to at least change something about themselves and clean up their lives in order for God to start loving them? Don't they need to fix themselves in order to experience grace? No. They don't. You don't. I don't. And this is why grace is called amazing. And we talk about grace a lot in this church. We really do. And that's because we fail a lot. That's because we need it a lot. Honestly, I need it a lot. My therapist tells me that I talk so much about grace because it's my own need to experience in my own life. And so it's always a topic I wrestle with. And I know that when I talk about this topic, there are people in this room that struggle with this because they're thinking, you don't know what he did. You don't know what she said. You don't know how they made me feel. And you're right, I don't. But I do know that over and over again in the Bible, Jesus calls out people who tried to deny grace for others. Right? And I do know that we need grace because it's grace that saves us, 
through our faith. And it's grace that sets us free, and it's grace that picks us up when we fail over and over and over again. And I know that Jesus died a terrible, painful, and humiliating death so that we could experience this grace, so that we could be forgiven of our sins, so that we could experience a better life. And because of that, we're going to talk a lot about grace in this church. Right? And that doesn't mean we disregard truth. John 1.14 says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Right? Jesus came to earth full of grace and church, he, or truth. He is equally 100% of both. But I personally don't think it's a coincidence that John wrote grace and truth and not truth and grace. I mean, think about it. If grace is experienced, we are more likely to hear truth because we know that it's coming from a place of love and care. But if it's truth first, we're going to put up walls because we don't understand that the truth is coming from a place of somebody wanting what's best for us. Right? Experiencing grace leads us to trust and truth. Jesus giving up his life for our sin, sins is what gives us confidence that we can believe what Scripture says and living the way he calls us to is best. Right? And so when we look at this story, this brother, the thing is he loves truth more than he loves grace. Right? He's full of truth. I need what's fair. I need justice. I need punishment. And their father's response is like, what about a measure of grace? And the second thing that I want to point out in this story of the parable is this. We are told to rejoice when lost people become found. There are no qualifiers for this. There are no caveats. There's no buts. This is just a straight-up statement. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are told to rejoice when people choose grace and put their faith in Jesus, even if you don't like them, even if they hurt you, even if it doesn't seem fair, even if it's the ex-husband that walked out on you, even if it's the parent who abused you, even if it's the friend that took advantage of you, if they get to a point of choosing grace in their life, they're choosing Jesus in their life, we are called to rejoice. In fact, Jesus ends all three of the parables about lost things in Luke 15 this way. Uh, when the shepherd finds the lost sheep, it says this, he will call together his friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. Moving forward, when the widow finds her lost coin, it says, she will call in her friends and neighbors and say, rejoice with me because I have found my lost coin. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. And then we know how the father responds when he finds his lost son. In Luke 15, 32, it says, we had to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead, and he has come back to life. He was lost, and now he is found. Right? We celebrate. First service today, uh, we, we got to celebrate Jamie as he was baptized. Uh, we got to celebrate Jamie as he chose forgiveness of his sins, as he chose being made new. And as Jamie was preparing for this next step, we asked him a few questions just to share uh, a little bit about his life. And he told us that uh, he grew up with a rough childhood where God and faith were not a part of his life. Eventually, bad decisions, burned bridges, and broken relationships led him, to a, led him to a place where he was spiraling out of control with substance abuse problems. And that's when he walked into the Frederick Rescue Mission. And then he shared this with us. He said, today, 
I want to give myself a fresh start in life. I don't want to stay in the cycle that I've been trapped in. I don't want my kids to have the same life I have. I want to break the cycle for them too. And we got to celebrate that with him. But one thing we do before anybody gets baptized is we have them sign the trough. We started doing this when Collective launched. There's over 100 names on that thing. But what if I told you that one of the names on this trough represented someone who was in a gang? What if that gang was actually the KKK? Because that is very real. And there's a name on that trough that represents someone who lived a life full of sin and anger and hatred and racism. And he lived in that place for a very, very long time. But now it represents someone who lives a life full of forgiveness. Now that name represents someone who came to their senses, who realized the way that they were living was wrong. They had that prodigal moment and they ran back toward God. Now that name represents someone who's been forgiven and made new in Christ. And so let me ask you, are you okay with that? What if I told you there are names on that trough that represent people who've been to jail for drugs, for violence, for a ton of other things? Are you okay with that? Or do you feel uncomfortable about the grace that they've been given? Are you okay with these people changing? Or do you want them to stay stuck as prodigals forever? Because that's really what we're talking about. That's really what the brother wanted. He wanted his little brother to be stuck, to be a prodigal forever, to be labeled through his sin, to be labeled because of his brokenness. He didn't want his brother to receive grace. How about someone who's on there who cheated on their husband or someone who tried to take their life multiple times before realizing their life was worth living? What about someone who spent their whole entire life as an atheist cursing God's name before turning to God? Are we okay with that? Because Jesus is, right? And that's what the story of the prodigal son reminds us of. Jesus is okay with prodigals coming home, and we don't need to live a life like the older brother where we try to deny that for other people because we think they're too broken, too sinful, that the mistake that they made is too big. In his book, No More Dragons, uh, Jim Bergen, who I mentioned earlier, wrote this. He said, only Jesus has the power to truly change anyone's life So where is the most effective place for people to bump into Jesus, if not the church? And I completely agree with Jim. This is the best place for people to experience grace. This is the place where prodigals should know they can come home. But this only happens if we love grace and rejoice when prodigals return. This only happens if the Father doesn't have to beg us to go outside of the party, to beg us to come inside and rejoice because we care more about punishment and fairness and justice than we do about unconditional love and endless second chances. And so as we wrestle with this story, as we see it from different perspectives, we have to remind ourselves to live a life that is like the Father because we lived a life that's like the prodigal son, not like the brother who puts up barriers and tries to stop and eliminate people from experiencing the goodness that God brings. Let's pray. God, as we read this story, um, and for those of us who have heard this story before, it's really easy to kind of step over the older brother. It's really easy to read this part of the story and say, hey, that's not me. You know, I, I would be happy if my brother came home But God, when we're put in similar situations where people who have hurt us or hurt people we love turn toward Jesus, we really struggle with that. 
God, we really try to minimize the grace that they're experiencing. Because the truth is, it is hard to watch people who have lived a life that hurt us especially turn toward you. But God, this parable is a reminder, the story that Jesus told is a reminder that we don't need to get in the way of your grace. God, that we don't need to put up barriers, that we need to create a pathway and opportunity for people to come to you. And when they do, we rejoice. God, we celebrate when anybody comes back home that was lost. And so God, we're thankful um, for this story and this challenge that it gives us. God, we're thankful that for those of us who've had that prodigal son moment that have come to their senses of their return home, that we were embraced. God, that we didn't get stopped by the brother on our way in. But God, I pray that we live that out in our own life as well. God, that we choose a life that's closer to the father than the older brother who tried to stop the younger brother from experiencing the goodness that you have. God, thank you for this story. God, thank you that we have the chance to look at it from from other angles and different perspectives. Um, God, help us lean into the people that we want to be like. God, we love you and pray these things in your name. Amen.